Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, compassion for all beings, excellent science fiction, and more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and this episode is the second in a series of conversations with Daniel Ingram. Daniel Ingram is an emergency medicine physician and longtime Dharma practitioner. He's the author of the seminal text, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book, and also the main force behind the radical Dharma Overground website, which specializes in a brand of unusually frank discussion of meditation practice. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Popping the Bubble of Projection. Daniel, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast yet again. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I really appreciate your willingness to come on the show. Your last episode has been tremendously popular, so we have a high benchmark to hit. All right. (laughs) So I understand that you are coming out with a second version of what is affectionately known as MCTB out there in the world. And for non-hyper, nerdy, hardcore Dharma weirdo listeners, that means mastering the core teachings of the Buddha, Daniel's groundbreaking book on Buddhist practice. So you have a new version of that coming out. Yeah, so it's still in the last final typeset proofs editing phase, but hopefully sometime in the next few months, will come out. It's got more about techniques, more about concentration, more about some autobiographical stuff that I think by leaving it out of the first one kind of ended up causing some confusion that wasn't helpful. It's got more about magic and the powers. It's got more maps. It's got more about the problems with maps and how to handle those. And it responds a lot to years of feedback I got from the first edition. So hopefully it will address some of the concerns, complaints, ideas for enhancement, et cetera, that people were kind enough to present. Yeah, this is the wonderful thing about a second edition, right? You just get all that feedback from the first book, and it really helps to fix all the parts where people are confused or take offense or whatever. Yeah. You could at least be clearer. Not that it isn't still likely to confuse and offend. It very much is, but still, we try. <laughs> So what's been going on in Daniel Land? You have put out a new book in the meantime, a little book. I believe it's co-authored, isn't it? The Fire Casino with Shannon Stein. Yes, with Shannon Stein. And so we talked about the Fire Casino a ton in the last podcast. That was the main theme. But can you update listeners on the Fire Casino since they last heard you talk about that about a year ago? People seem to like the book. It's been really neat to see people's reactions to Shannon. It's basically her retreat diary with some notes she took about feedback that we gave each other. And it's been really fun just to see people delight in a really cool concentration practice that can produce some remarkable effects. And I'm actually going to get to go on a retreat for 11 days in a little castle in France coming up with eight friendly European meditators slash wizards And we're going to have a lot of fun just doing Fire Casino, hopefully, and geeking out on the remarkably interesting visual and auditory and other strange effects that that can create. I'm really excited about that in just a week or so. 
Wow, nice. And isn't it the case that you are retiring like maybe yesterday? I'm retiring on the 29th of March. That's true. Nice. So after many, many years of being a, what is it, an ER doc? Yep. Going to get to cash it in and go hang out and do the fire casino practice in France. Yeah, wander the world and do some dharmic things and see what's going to be the next fun projects that help my own practice and the practice of others and see what's going to be a good time, what's useful and helpful. Yeah, I'm really excited about the possibilities. That just sounds tremendous. Congratulations on your retirement. Thank you so much. uh, Yeah, I'm positive many listeners will be wondering, does that mean Daniel's going to become a full-time teacher? Yeah, no, really not. (laughs) I don't think so. It's actually one of the things I wanted to talk about with you on this podcast is teacher models. And I've been thinking a lot about teacher models recently, like grade school models, college models, graduate education models, one-room classroom models where you have people of wildly different levels of skill and understanding all in the same room with some teacher. I've been thinking a lot about co-adventuring models versus sort of more hierarchical models, thinking about what limits and reduces transference and projection, what empowers people and all of that. And that's the kind of stuff I was hoping to talk about today. Nice. Let's go there. First of all, to get back a little bit to the question I asked, so you are not going to be teaching Buddhist meditation full time? No. And I plan to do some retreats and some travel and some music and some writing and some just solo practice and some retreats with people. And I still, you know, answer some emails and Skype calls and stuff sometimes. But I don't plan to just be, you know, Daniel, the full time Dharma teacher, sort of like you know, what Shenzhen's doing or anything quite like that. I need slightly better boundaries on my time (laughs) and a little more downtime and a little more balance. I've spent, you know, the last extremely long period of time working just way too hard. And the primary lesson of that is you've just got to draw some better boundaries to make things more sustainable and healthy. So practice and training and morality, right livelihood and moderation in right livelihood And so that's what I hope to do. Yeah. And so does this vision of not teaching full time, but actually continuing to do some teaching and some helping of people online or individual, let's say, talks with people, does this fit in somewhere to the teacher-student model that you are referring to? Does it have a place in a grid somewhere or is this just purely what Daniel's going to do? Yeah, I've been thinking about how people relate to teachers and how people use teachers and what teachers expect of students and, you know, all the various models along the way. And I've been thinking a lot about graduate school. So I got a two-year master's degree in epidemiology and got an MD and spent, you know, 14 and a half years of my life in school after high school. So, and obviously high school and kindergarten, preschool and So, and I've thought a lot about how I related to the teachers along the way and how I learned various subjects and how that all went and sort of how that progressed. As I got older, I would relate to teachers differently. And I've been thinking a lot about how that relates to people in Dharma practice. And the strange thing about it is the vast majority of Dharma practitioners are adults. And yet the way they relate to meditation teachers or authorities or experts or more advanced practitioners 
can have this incredibly wide range to it with some people kind of relating to them like a kindergartner might, you know, where the teacher is this sort of magical creature, which you have no idea what the depths of their knowledge might be, but they're remarkably accomplished thing in comparison to you. And then you don't know how to relate to them. You have sort of magical thinking about them. You couldn't possibly comprehend the depths of their knowledge or their limitations. It's this really strange relationship and it's an awkward, sort of uncomfortable relationship, particularly if you happen to be an adult, right? So that's the weird thing. We kind of expect it of kids. We don't expect it so much of people, you know, past their teenage years, but it happens. And we see plenty of examples of that, like the recent documentaries about Osho clearly sort of show some of that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I feel like even though all of us studying meditation are adults, with adult brains and adult bodies. We were all children once. Yeah. And there's still that part of your mind that can open up to a teacher or to an outside influence in a highly non-critical manner with no critical filter or critical thinking, no valve on it or no screen. And in a way that can feel wonderful. It can have some of the beauty of childlike awareness. But in another way, it, of course, opens you up to being bamboozled in every way a little child can be bamboozled. Because that's what the critical function keeps from happening. The fascinating thing for me is to see how often the result of, let's say, a deep meditation practice while you're on a retreat can have that effect of very temporarily derailing the critical function Yeah. Or if you go live in a community. Yeah. It sort of just happens either accidentally or as a result of high concentration or other practices. You can just get into kind of a non-critical childlike mode. And that's not a bug. That's a feature. That's nice, right? And yet anything anybody says to you when you're in that space, you're just going to be like, oh, really? Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, it almost Uh, has some of that hypnosis power or suggestibility to it. Very much so. So to me, it's like this is something that is not somehow a accidental or practitioner is doing on purpose. It's one of the things that is a side effect of the practice and something that we should be clearly working to make sure that we don't make decisions in that state and so on. Yeah. And then I've been thinking about the far other extreme of the range, like graduate school and postdoc fellowships and stuff. And there you're on the opposite extreme where you're expected to often be in teacher roles, teaching classes or being a TA or even designing curricula. You're expected to be shortly becoming a peer in terms of being a professor You're expected to push the field forward. You're expected to create new syntheses of information and innovation that has never been seen before. Independent research or to put things together in new and helpful ways that push the field forward and being trained to be one who then will teach others to do that same thing. And having, you know, traversed the range of the educational spectrum from preschool to graduate school, I've been thinking a lot about how to encourage Dharma practitioners to really try to hit up towards that graduate school level whenever possible. If you gave people the project of saying, okay, let's say you were on an island and you had all the food you wanted and the weather was pleasant and there are no dangerous creatures and you had a nice place to sleep, but there's no Dharma books, there's no Dharma teachers, there's nothing. How would you figure this thing out? If your goal was awakening or deep concentration or real kindness or depths of compassion, what would you do? 
how would you go about it? What first principles would you fall back on? Do you have those really firmly in mind? And if not, why not? If you've been doing this for some reasonable period of time, how have you not established those within yourself? And I've also been talking to friends like my friend Shannon, with whom I wrote the Fire Casino book. And she was remarking that when she started using a model that was different, where like she said, okay, there's a meditation topic we're going to talk about, a Dharma topic, and I want you all to go out and research it. I want you before we get together to talk about this, rather than me just giving you a lecture on it, to figure out everything you can come up with about it and you come back and then we're going to talk about it and we'll see what you've come up with. And she's coming from a sort of a hierarchical model traditionally, sort of a more Tibetan-y kind of a context. And she mentioned that it just absolutely transformed a lot of the practitioners that she was working with, that they really were coming alive and engaging and kicking in all kinds of parts of their brains that they would have developed in other contexts because as adults, we've all become adult learners. And so we all have those capacities for independent research and or almost all of us, and the capacity to work things out and solve problems and, you know, watch a YouTube video and then learn how to repair your toilet or whatever it is, the cool (laughs) thing you want to learn. And so I've been thinking a lot about how you put people in contexts and settings and with expectations that empowers them to draw on their full adult learner sort of graduate school mode brain to embody this within themselves so it becomes a living thing that they competently master and encourage to do that. And I've been thinking a lot about the settings and the messages and the structures of teaching situations that also create the opposite effect, where people suddenly drop into much more childlike or dependent modes. Because I think all of us have these capacities within us. We all started out childlike and dependent, and then we you know, hopefully grew up and became less childlike and dependent and more capable of helping and serving others and giving back and innovating and all that stuff. I've been watching me and all my colleagues in situations and thinking back on my own educational career and thinking, wow, I would drop into and out of all these different modes all the time, much more childlike dependent ones and much more advanced, self-motivated, self-critical, but productive way modes where I was really trying to put the responsibility on myself to figure something out. And I've been thinking about you know, which teachers of mine were the best at creating those situations that called on me and those around me to be our best and really have our A game of adult learning engaged and step into those roles rather than the more dependent ones. Thoughts? Yeah, I love the idea. I mean, leave it to Shannon to experiment with that idea of having the students just research the topic first. It's such a cool way to engage people's brains and help them to switch gears into a different mode, not the, you know, childlike, just tell me how it is mode. It's so cool. So how would you see beginning to engage meditation students in a much more, let's say, active, creative, adult mode? What would that look like? Well, one of my first examples of this in the Dharma world was Christopher Titmus, who I recognize has a bit of controversy around him. So I'm aware of that. But still, when on retreats with him, he did these great sit and inquiry sessions and people would ask him questions and he would write back on the people and say, okay, what do you got? Answer your question. How are you going to figure this out? You know, what do you know? What conceptual frameworks do you have? How will you apply them? What's going to be the answer in your experience right now? How does that relate to what you're capable of and what you need to learn. And it was really great to see that. It was much more engaged and you could see people suddenly, rather than become these sort of passive receptacles, were like, whoa, okay. Like it made a lot of them pretty uncomfortable, but at the same time, you could just watch the growth curve be accelerated 
remarkably and led to some great conversations and some great insights and some great sense that, oh, wow, here are some people who can figure some stuff out and who can answer some of their own questions and who can really grow into their own as strong, accomplished meditators. So I really liked that one a lot. I also really liked the setting in the original Buddhist Sangha, where there was much more dialogue between various people in an open way. You were at Dharma the Gathering. Yeah, what do you think of those conversations where we were just sort of tag-teeping questions that people would come up with and putting it back to them and everybody giving their own solutions to it? What do you think of that? I loved it. I was so blown away by the mood and the openness and also the fact that even though there was a little bit of a sense that you were leading the group or every once in a while I'd be leading the group, but in general, there's a sense that everyone was allowed to have an equal voice in talking about what was going on and describing what they were seeing in another practitioner's practice from their point of view and giving suggestions. And it was tremendously creative and interesting, but also I just thought it felt like a sangha, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right? There was suddenly a disparate group of individuals. I mean, most of us had never met each other before, right. even, even online, even in an email. And very quickly, a sense of connection and warmth and community interaction was established. It was really, really cool. Thanks. And then you brought up the question of sort of people momentarily dropping into leadership-like modes, yeah. right? Which is a real thing. And I think that's normal. I think it's healthy. I think it makes sense when there are differential skill sets, different skill sets at different levels or different areas of expertise in a room or in a group, which is normal, right? So you'll almost never find a group of any sort of people doing a technical craft or engaged in a pursuit where they all have the same skill level. And clearly there are some who are doing it longer or better in some specific particular way. And so it's normal when they then take the floor to have some weight of authority behind what they say. You can feel that usually. And so that's yeah. a normal thing. Which also leads me to the question of sort of the middle period of education. So I'm thinking like between the early childhood educational stuff and between graduate school, for me, there was that long period of just lecture and lecture and lecture and presentation and presentation and presentation and homework and homework and practice and practice, where it took a long time, like when learning mathematics or when learning English language or history, there was a lot of information that just had to be presented. And so I think about those modes as well, where sometimes there's just someone who knows some information, you know, it makes sense for them to drop into information presenting mode, you know, if they happen to have that information and someone else doesn't. And that's sort of the phase of the Dharma, where I think in terms of the formal structure of like elementary school, I really miss that. And I keep thinking about like, okay, how do you simultaneously avoid like getting yourself into some sort of institutional situation, but yet you long for this sort of structure of institutional growth and Dharma learning and stuff that allows people to then step to the graduate school level. And therein lies the big educational paradox that I find myself struggling with, right? Because to get to the graduate school level, there were those years of you just needed to get information given to you and be corrected when you got some problem wrong and, you know, be able to discuss your answers with the teacher or see feedback on exams or papers or whatever it was. And there was a lot of that. 
And so I think a lot about how do you do that middle ground in a way that then provides enough structure so that as soon as you can, you can transition people to a more graduate-like mode? Or is there a way to do that mode simultaneously with the sort of graduate school mentality? The good news is that there's no shortage of teachers and classes and learning situations in the meditation world that provide that just kind of information modality, that middle school or middle level modality is very available. Yeah. To me, the simplest expedient manner in which to keep it from getting too power centric or too guru like is to just go to a lot of different teachers during that mode, hopefully not in a way that's confusing or totally chaotic, but rather in a way that just keeps you from becoming too dependent on one system or too sheltered in one little tiny backwater modality. Instead, by working with several different teachers or several different related systems, you can get a lot of the benefit, maybe even more benefit than working with one system and at the same time not get too scattered. And I think we're in a situation right now where, you know, there's so much available that that is a fairly easy modality for people to make manifest. That's true. I guess there's so many apps and YouTube videos and books these days. Yeah, they're actually impossible to keep up with at this point. That's, I guess we in some ways have the reverse problem. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if you're working with, let's say, Chula Dasa and Shenzhen and maybe some Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, that's a lot of material. And in many ways, those three systems, if we want to call it that, are three different ways of talking about the same thing, even though they have a lot of big differences, you guys are really, in the long run, talking about the same techniques. And so I'm finding it very fascinating to just loosely watch an open group of young people online, like learning from all three of those systems and really starting to get really, really good and smart and engaged and creative really quickly. Yeah, that has been exciting to see. I agree. How would you imagine or do you know anyone currently like where can someone begin to dig into the graduate level or let's put it another way. How can someone begin to engage the graduate level style of learning? I just want to clarify here. We're talking about a style of learning rather than like a level of material when we're saying graduate school. Well, I'm actually thinking about both. So both the style of learning in terms of the fully responsible adult who wishes to be a very responsible party in the learning process, as well as someone who wants to take it to the level of, okay, this is high level stuff. Um, I think both of those are important, uh, separate things in some ways, but related in others, because it's unlikely the latter is going to arise a whole lot if you don't have the former. You see what I mean? It's unlikely the high level practice is going to rise if you haven't really tried to embody this for yourself and make it your own and said, okay, I'm going to be the person who does it and figures it out and gets it well. That's right. At least in my interpretation, the reason that we have a number of teachers presenting this material in a way that sounds kind of different is because these teachers have in fact gone at it in a graduate school kind of way and got creative with it and figured out how to make it work at a very high level for themselves and then begin communicating it back. And so it has that, let's say, idiosyncratic interpretive level in there. And to me, that's very enriching and enlivening to the field. Yeah, I hope so. 
I certainly hope so. You asked the question of where people can go to do this, and that's one of the big questions. So there are centers in Asia where you can go that they're still pretty hierarchical. You can go there at advanced practice and get good instruction, though it's often in a very traditional style. But in terms of focusing sort of on more an American or Western graduate mode where you're really trying to force people to come up with things well on their own in a less supervised or less structured way. I don't see a whole lot of those places. And I've been thinking about how does one create those? And what are the shadow sides of creating those? Does it then sort of feel elitist or clicky or exclusive? Those are some of the real questions I've been running up against. What starts naturally happening is that people start going, okay, that's a person I can work with. That's a person who's got the chops. And then they start getting into social circles where people have those connections, which is also what happens in the academic world, right? You start finding you know, your niche and your social connections and you put together your graduate advisor or thesis committee or whoever it is, you find your mentors. So a lot of it does involve, unfortunately, politics and playing social games or knowing the right people at this point. There's something kind of yucky about that. And yet it seems to be the way it happens in lots of these settings. I think that we're social creatures, and I think that our advancement in the world has always depended on who we know, even including our own parents, you know, who were raised around, what level of society we're born into. So there might not be any getting away from that. Yeah, might be right. But there are ways to mitigate it. We can, as a group of practitioners and as a community of practice, we can always encourage making as many introductions for other people as possible. Yeah. You've been very good about this. Just have open online community discussions about everything all the time. You know, it's... I try. um, You ever hear this phrase called Acharya Musti? I don't know it. No, go ahead. It means the fist of the teacher. You recognize Acharya, but Acharya Musti. So uh, the teacher's fist. And it it doesn't refer to sort of a Zen-like bashing you in the head. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It refers to this way that teachers can sort of guard their secret information and only give it to you after you like, you know, sweep their house for 10 years to prove your (laughs) worthiness. You know, and it's one of the things the Buddha himself said he did not have. And he specifically said, I'm not going to do that. He said, I, you know, I don't have the fist of the teacher. I'm not going to hide anything from you ever. Nice. I tell you all there is to tell you right here and now. I love it. And I think, you know, we can take an example of the Buddha if we want to, <laughs> you know, he's, he's right there saying, hey, don't do that thing. Share the information, let people talk about it, you know, let's get together in communities of practitioners and uh, try to share how to do this stuff. I've been always so grateful to having Shinzen as my main teacher for so long because he's so utterly selfless about continuously sharing all his material and with just no strings attached ever. Nice, yeah. Yeah. Also, you know, lately he's just said, I never heard him say this in the past, but lately he's been saying, all of you just go out and be teachers now. Just start teaching immediately. It doesn't matter. You know, even if you're just show, <laughs> even if you're showing your friends how to breathe deep, just do it because we need people to know this stuff. So. Wow. Um, yeah. Powerful. It's powerful. So in other words, my thoughts are, I think just 
by modeling an attitude of openness and sharing and uh, minimizing the amount of elitism involved, we can help overcome the problem you're suggesting. I think there's another issue which comes up. Well, let's contrast it. Let's contrast it. You can start out with the, the sort of childlike mode, and the problem there is there's no critical function. And so you get, you know, in place, at least that's my analysis of it. And so you get all kinds of malfeasance and mischief going on. But the good news is at least you get this childlike openness and some access to some deep states. But on the other end, as we often see in graduate school, you can kind of over-exercise the opposite function where you become nothing but a ball of critique and criticism and seeing what's wrong with everything. Or even as teenagers, I remember in my junior high school to high school years, you know, thinking very cynically about the people who were teaching me because I was a snarky, you know, cynical teenager and looked at these people. What do they know? Oh, really? Oh, is that useful? Am I ever going to use that? Is that of value? Who are these people anyway? And you start to actually see them as slightly flawed adults rather than you know, the sort of magical way I viewed them earlier. And so there's plenty of snarkiness that can come in in the middle grades as well. Of course, we want that critical function online, especially for the graduate school model, where it's like they're seeing what works for them or we're seeing what works for us and we're trying to sort through the different uh, ways of looking at something. But we also want to, you know, mitigate that, right, with some ability to be open and understand that nobody's perfect and no system is the one true complete system. Right. Or no study is the perfect study or no researcher, the perfect researcher, professor, the perfect professor, or the totally flawed, you know, one either. Yeah, I keep seeing here and there people who are, you know, intensely critiquing meditation practice or Buddhist practice for, you know, being capitalist or flawed in some other manner. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of stuff that we can find a fault with here. and, And that's real. It's not just something we should ignore, but at the same time, let's do something about it. You know, let's get engaged and get creative. It's very easy to just sit back and criticize. Absolutely. Yeah, you must get a reasonable amount of that doing this corporate stuff that you do. You bet. It's capitalist, it's racist, it's narcissistic. I mean, you know, I hear it all. And that's right. There is some of that in everything, some of that in the corporate sphere. But what certainly I'm trying to do and the people I work with are trying to do is our best to find ways to eliminate that aspect of it or mitigate that aspect of it. And yet still, should a person who's working in a corporate job not be allowed to learn to meditate? Yeah. You know, we still want to get the information out there. So it's a creative process. And simply saying, hey, that's capitalist doesn't really help, even if it's true. Well, there are always market forces. There have always been market forces on Buddhism, on the monasteries, on who was supported by the rulers or the merchants, on who was favored, on which strain of Buddhism was allowed, on which were suppressed, who got killed. (laughs) You know, there have never not been market and political forces on the thing. And strangely enough, the monasteries and traditions and techniques that survived were clearly the ones that must have had some political and economic market savvy or they would not be here. That's right. Unfortunate, but true. It's unfortunate, but true. And again, that doesn't mean we just accept it and move on. I mean, it's a valid critique and it's something that will be really important to learn to do something about. But 
it's that creative factor that you're describing that I think will be the thing that moves us forward into a more inclusive and be less market-driven version of this material. I'm curious though, Daniel, you know, you've had the personal experience of graduate school and, you know, learning in a creative way. How did you yourself bring that to bear on your meditation practice long ago? Well, what actually happened is I ended up in a situation where it was very hard to access teachers, and yet my hair was on fire about the Dharma, or the teachers I had access to, there was something complicated in the relationship. I won't go into all the stories. But the point is, I found myself forced to then say, okay, I've got these books, you know, I've got access to some stuff. Because back then in the you know mid-early 90s, there just wasn't as much material around now. There's an insane amount totally unabsorbable amount. Whereas then you really could kind of read everything that was available. You really could kind of, you know, through interlibrary loan, exhaust everything. And then... And that was it. Yeah. And that forced me to say, okay, I got to grow up because I'm going to figure this stuff out. And if I don't have people who can help me, I'm just going to do it myself. And then I ended up realizing that that just forced me to fall back on the techniques because the techniques were what did it. I mean, you can read all the stuff, you can learn the theory, you can hang out in the scenes, you can do whatever but it's the techniques that make the thing work, the simple investigations, usually very, very simple instructions just applied really well for long enough and high enough dose consistently enough with real ability to critique oneself about how one's doing and whether or not what one is perceiving looks anything like what these people are describing. Like if you look at the Abhidhamma or if you look at the Janic criteria or whatever it is. And that situation kind of forced me to grow up which otherwise I might not have. I mean, so maybe all those, you know, complex adversarial, often pretty tense or screwed up relationships were a good thing. I didn't view it that way at the time, but maybe in some ways helpful. But something about all this has made me think a lot about, to slightly change the topic, what I call like a co-adventurer model. The I like the sound of it already. Yeah, because the retreats I'm thinking about and the things I'm planning to do all involves sitting with a group of people where, yeah, I may have some skill sets or some expertise or whatever, but so do other people in the group. We're all going to practice and sit together, follow the same schedule, talk with each other about practice. These are not situations in which I'm, you know, hopefully going to spend much time being the dude on the front cushion roll. In fact, the absolute minimum that I can get away with of that by far the better and the more comfortable I will be. And, you know, I'll talk about my practice with them, whatever happened with me that day, just like they talked about their practice and whatever, you know, delights or challenges or whatever I face, just like they face. And I think that makes it all way more human and down to earth and normalizing and hopefully will cut a lot of the projection stuff that otherwise can occur. You know, because if you didn't know that, you know, had the meditation chops or knowledge that I do, you know, in daily life, yeah, well, I may have whatever personality characteristics. I just seem like some dude, right? I, you know, stub my toe, I go to the bathroom, I, you know, whatever. Obviously, these are obvious things, right? But people can sort of forget that in some sort of functional way. Not if you ask them, oh, does he do this and this? Of course they'd say, yeah, but sort of in terms of the spirit of it, of just being a flawed mammal who just happened to you know, be lucky enough to run into some cool techniques and have some opportunities to practice. It's just one aspect of their much broader picture, not all of which is perfect. And so there's necessarily always lots of projection, but even a little bit can be really disempowering for other people because it creates these strange power dynamics, which are really artificial and, and I don't like, and I would be amazed if they liked them. And 
So trying to figure out how to go out of my way to make sure that I create models and situations where things are as absolutely down to earth and normalized and human and functional and co-adventury rather than hierarchical as possible. Yeah, so I agree with you on this, obviously. Uh, however, I will, just for the sake of discussion, throw something in there. What about the skillful means aspect of projection? You know, the fact that when someone is that suggestible and is that open, that the teacher or whoever is being projected upon has a unique opportunity to kind of do some teaching right into that space, into that openness, into that receptive mind that can really impact the person if done well and done with the right intention incredibly powerfully and be very motivational and inspiring and give them an example and engage a level of hair on fireness about learning meditation that might be unavailable any other way. Does that quality of relationship have any value, do you think? Clearly, I myself benefited from people being kind enough to drop into that role with me. So yes, do I think it, that's the only way it happens? So I like your first point, but not necessarily the qualifier that that's the only way it would happen. So because maybe it is, maybe I'm just totally wrong and delusional and I'm rejecting something that's of such unique value, but it may be that there are other ways to accomplish the same or similar things. Not that I myself haven't really appreciated it when people have done that and been kind about it and skillful about it and non-exploitive about it and helpful about it. And it's been in a safe space and sane and healthy and all that. But yeah, there is a lot of qualifiers there. Yeah. If they're sane, if they're healthy, if it's safe, you know, et cetera, et cetera, it can be wonderful. But yeah. we've certainly seen that that is so often not the case. Right. And so do you feel like it's a mode of learning that is so uniquely powerful that to try to get rid of it is a waste? Or do you think we can get there in other ways almost as quickly or almost as effectively? What do you think? In terms of getting there, I can't promise that all the effects are obviously exactly the same between that method and some other method. But do I know plenty of people who have really not been exposed to much of that who still have become good practitioners? Yeah. Although I also know some people who have been exposed to a lot of that and become very good practitioners. So in terms of speed, that's always a tricky one, right? So there's speed, there's ease, there's final destination. I mean, like, it's hard to produce exact equivalences and be sure that you're evaluating something. Oh, yeah, that led to the exactly the same thing in the same time. I don't know. Maybe not. And then how much of this is just sort of a residual rebellious against authority and the modes of authority and the methods of authority kind of thing latent in me that I should just get over? <laughs> <laughs> well, but those are all good questions. But where are you landing with it right now? Do you feel like, hey, let's just completely let go of this guru projection stuff and in fact, not just let go of it, but actively kind of push back against it and get everyone in their adult pants doing their work on their that's what makes their own steam me feel the most comfortable and maybe that's just my own thing so maybe i should look at why i feel more comfortable with that than i feel with some of the other modes and maybe that's purely my own stuff right i'm willing to acknowledge that but i find this sense of like relief when i feel that and whoever i'm talking with or interacting with that sort of adultness, that responsibility for practice, that those sets of reasonably critical filters that are not either just totally wide open and naive 
or so shut down and harsh that they're just willing to blast everything kind of habitually. Neither of those are helpful, but that sort of reasonable, skillful, flexible middle ground, that just makes me on my end feel like, okay, that's much easier to work with. What are your thoughts on that? Well, a couple things. One, I certainly benefited quite a bit from the guru model. I just like you, happened to be with some teachers who were moral and had my best interest at heart and used my projections on them very effectively to teach me very deeply. And so I'm very grateful about that. And I, and I had a good experience, unlike many people. You know, I felt like that was a good thing for me. On the other hand, we all know that very often doesn't go that way. And furthermore, and this is where it gets, I think, to the crux of the issue, that model of, you know, just surrendering at the feet of the teacher, that's not from our culture. That's not how we're trained in our society. So there's nothing else that we're doing where it's exactly like that. Maybe you're I don't know, grad school advisor or something oh, God. Come, comes close. <laughs> Nightmare. <you know? laughs> the level of guidance and control a doctoral advisor has over a student might come close. But, yeah, it's horrible. But for most things, we don't work that way. Yeah. And we're not trained to work that way. So we're not trained with all the looking out for all the failure modes and all the ways to make sure it doesn't go off the rails. Right. And so... Of course, it feels comfortable when we remove that because that's not something that we're trained in being good at as a culture, as a society. So I agree. I mean, to me, I don't know why, but this happens to me fairly often where someone does try to guru project on me and I will just pop that bubble as quickly as possible. I mean, I'll just pick my nose or something until they <laughs> you know, let, let go of it and, and then we could get back to, to learning, you know. <laughs> There's, it's just not acceptable. It's like, okay, let's just not do that. Can we not go there? I mean, I understand why it's wonderful to think somebody really knows what's going on, but we're just all, as you put it, flawed mammals. And so I hope and I expect the future of meditation learning in our society is not based on people surrendering their critical faculty or surrendering their authority or surrendering their autonomy to you know, a teacher or even really allowing that level of projection to go on for very long. So, but you clearly have some gratitude, some sense of reverence or appreciation for the settings in which you found that. And you were sort of asking me, you know, do you like to use that or is there a way to use that skillfully? You must have worked with this yourself. So what pointers or parameters would you put on the moments where you say, yeah, maybe I'll add a little bit of this flavor that you do seem to value? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'd like to hear your thoughts about it too, but I'll start. If you're saying when I get in that mode as a learner, no, what are my parameters? as a teacher. I currently just don't allow the projection to happen. So my skillful response these days is to just bust the projection. And that's its own, I think, teaching. Like, hey, let's just not do that. I usually won't say it explicitly like that, but we'll just actually guide the other person to notice they're doing that and to let go of it. Like, hey, that's not really going to help that much. So let's just approach this as two people talking about a technique or two people working with an idea or two people trying to understand what happened in a meditation situation together. 
and nice. do that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I as you said, I might know more about it and be trying to show them something in particular. But when that childlike openness is there, which again, I think isn't a problem and also is very common, especially right after a very deep meditation, when that's there, just try to very gently guide the person back into critical thinking mode relatively quickly. Nice. How about you? Yeah, I tend to just sort of start being more and more and more my goofy, slightly edgy <laughs> self, right? And slightly become more absurd about it is one of the things because eventually people start to go, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, um, <laughs> you know, dropping okay, F bomber yeah, to you. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I can be a little bit edgy. It was really interesting. I, I just finished listening to the audiobook of Dharma Punks by Noah uh -huh. and yeah, Noah Levine. Yeah, and really appreciated the heck out of it. And it was really interesting to see like how the humanity and the realness and the edginess could combine with compassion and kindness and wisdom. And what was beautiful about that book is the extreme willingness to be honest about oneself. And I really appreciated the heck out of that. I thought that's some good stuff there. That's really yeah. nice. I felt comfortable all through it. I was like, man, I was just like, yeah. Noah has been very good about that. And his teaching centers called Against the Stream continue to be really good at that. I teach at Against the Stream in San Francisco every week. And oh, cool. I didn't know. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just love it because, A, you know, I'm an old punk rock weirdo, and so I just tend to vibrate on a similar frequency. <laughs> but beyond that, it's one of the least projection-filled rooms I find myself in. It's like there's something about that particular group that tends to just not tolerate the guru projection. And I have to say, I just love that. Awesome. That is great to hear. And then the thing I wondered about, because I haven't been to one of those centers, though I just found out there's one in Nashville, which is only just two hours north of me. And I thought, oh, I've got to go meet these people and check it out. And then I was wondering about like, how do you mix in something of the technical stuff that I appreciate with that kind of rebellious vibe? because I sort of more of a Zen vibe in some ways or a mainstream Vipassana vibe. And I could be totally wrong. I'm just making this up because I haven't spent much time with these people. I just listened to this one book. and uh, But I'm really intrigued. And I thought, is there a way to have that nice blend of real cool technical, maybe even athletic Dharma or whatever you want to call it, recreationally athletic, technical, competent Dharma that also simultaneously has a strong, hefty dosing of that spirit that I appreciated so much in that book. Oh, I think there absolutely is. And on a couple different levels, one is just simply, you know, there's different teachers at different times and various students find themselves just naturally resonating with different teachers. So if people are just too rebellious to want to dig in, then they'll go sit with one of the other teachers instead. But I have found that it's actually wonderful place to cultivate a deeper practice. And if you want to do that even more, as you know, of course, it takes many more hours of kind of engaged practical learning. And so we just do a day long or do an offsite or something. Nice. But I found that, yeah, I've just found the community ready and willing to really go there and also, you know, very astute about busting teachers on their bullshit. So it's great. Nice. 
That's cool. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, my ER work I've done. I found myself being generally more comfortable, the more gritty and grungy the clientele of the facility are. Interesting thing. Like, Ooh, tell me more. Yeah, like working in emergency departments with more affluent clientele who tend to be more of the sort of internet research. You know, they look up all the terms on Google, reading all the side effects of medications. I understand why they do it. I totally get it, right? You know, but tend to be a lot more the sort of worried well or much more intellectually engaged with the control of their medical care. Again, I totally understand why it's reasonable to be an engaged part of the therapeutic process. But simultaneously, something in that can be really interfering or get in the way of what actually ends up being good care and can also involve a spirit of not being able to tolerate the fact of mortality sometimes. Um, Mm. And so I find that when I'm taking care of patients who have come from some harder circumstances or had some more challenging backgrounds, I often find they're way more easy to get good medical care to them. It's easier to care for them. They roll with punches better. They're more accepting of you know adversity sometimes because they're more used to it. And a lot of them can just be a lot more sort of real. And I feel way more comfortable caring for them in an emergency department setting. So I tend to gravitate towards the centers where there's more of like down and out feel to more of the clientele because it's actually more enjoyable and easy to get them good care. And it feels more honest or something or less conflicted or more straightforward. So yeah, what are your thoughts? I have exactly the same experience. It's part of why I enjoy the milieu at Against the Stream in the first place. Nice. Right? It's very, very much that kind of vibe where if I go to other centers that are, you know, filled with, let's say, a lot of middle-aged psychotherapists with a lot on the line socially and so on, often it can feel really sweet and really connected. And I very much appreciate that. And at the same time, there's a little bit of a lack of grittiness and realness and a desire to keep everything so safe that it feels like the learning opportunities are diminished. I don't know. Do you ever notice that? Absolutely. So yeah, and thus I've been thinking a lot about like, if I have more time for Dharma stuff, like who do I want to be hanging out with? It's not the hyper-intellectual worried well, that's for certain, as much as some of the people who have a little more edge to them, a little more tolerance for the complexities of life. What are you seeing out there currently that you're finding really hopeful in the dharmic world? I've really been liking Chuladasa, John Yates' stuff. I think that was such an addition. Like it just, I mean, it's not like he came out of nowhere, but with that book, it was like, whoa, really up to the level of conversation and made people think about things in a different way. So that I found really helpful. Uh, Shinzen, I just can't help but think, oh my golly, what a shining gem, obviously. Still really enjoying a lot of online communities, right? The online Dharma communities where people are willing to discuss real experiences and real practice and depths of this and ask hard questions and really engage with what's possible. Those continue to thrill me. And then just thinking about uh, having retreats with friends. So that's also one of the things that feels most comfortable to me is just people who like to practice and who I know just going and we all just do a retreat somewhere. We rent a place or find a center and do that. And I hope to do a lot more of that because that feels good. It's just got something really nice about it. 
and you know the people and they know you as people, that automatically just feels more real. And particularly if you know these are people who have the capacity to handle themselves in the face of adverse experiences, that's really a key if you're going to do this. But those are some of the opportunities that I've found the most rewarding and uh, look forward to more of. Well, we've been alluding to this Dharma the Gathering event we went to, which follows the model you're describing. It's basically a group of friends or like-minded practitioners who got together in a very non-hierarchical way to just practice and talk. We mainly talked, but in other venues, I could see it being much more practice-based. And so let's describe that a little bit. How would you describe how that was organized as a retreat? It's such a different model compared to the kinds of retreats that you have done and I have done in the past, you know. Yeah, so Dharma the Gathering was 27, I guess, people where we just found a meditation center. And there are plenty of these for rent retreat centers where you can just say, hey, we'll take over your center for the weekend or whatever. And it was a list of people where I sent out, hey, these are people I think it'd be cool to come hang out with for a weekend and get to know better or even you know, meet for the first time in real space, people I'd known of online. And then I said, hey, if you've got some really cool friends who you want to invite, invite them too. And just when it fills up, it fills up. And, and so we got this really amazingly cool group of fun people together. And then we just talked about Dharma. Right? We talked about our practices, we talked about our lives, we talked about our struggles, and we talked about, you know, aging parents and kids and, and illnesses, and we talked about joys, and we, you know, sort of went at it with each other, and hey, really, you could you think this, or you do this, or oh, what do you think of this, or really, you know, and kind of, and that's, <laughs> uh, you know, it just kind of went for it, and it was just so delightful and fun. And that's the kind of thing, when I think about the early Sangha or Nalanda, I have this sort of imagine based on the stories I read that people were doing a lot of that kind of thing. And you had some really cool practitioners at different skill levels coming from different traditions, bringing some diversity to the table of experiences and methods and perspectives. And that makes the whole thing so much richer and so much more fun and enjoyable. And we all got to talk about like, hey, these are the things that are challenging for me right now. This is the cutting edge of my practice. What would y'all do with that? And the crowdsourcing of good Dharma advice just felt so healthy and helpful. And it was really interesting even for me to see when I wasn't the person either asking questions or trying to offer advice just to watch, oh, that's how this other person handled that. And that's the advice they give. Wow, that was really good. I need to try to remember that. You know, like that was really skillful. And to watch how people fielded each other's questions and responses was as much learning as when I was one of the ones asking something or talking. I have to say that that particular aspect, I think we jokingly called it Dharma diagnosis, right? Yeah. That particular way we were interacting was, for me, just unbelievably fascinating and fun and filled with learning. I mean, we would just have somebody, I don't even know how we started doing this. I think it kind of happened in these one-in-the-morning conversations where there's like maybe 15 people sitting around on some couches or whatever, but someone would be very vulnerable and open about what was going on in their practice and what they were having difficulty with and put it out there. And in a group of other practitioners, all of us would kind of listen. And then anyone who had something to offer would offer it. And 
as a way of helping that person or informing them or at least saying how they would work with it. Yeah. And then another person would offer something else. And exactly what you're describing, that these different minds encountering that same person's situation and discussing it in such different ways and looking at it from completely different viewpoints and yet all of it kind of adding up to a much deeper, fuller, more scintillating, and maybe even creative kind of response than I've ever seen before. It was really, really special. Yeah, I agree. And so listeners, if you're thinking of doing something like that, do it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's part of why I'm unpacking this, because Really, I think what you described as the vetting process might have been the most important part, where it's making sure that you're at this retreat center, since it's going to be non-hierarchical and you're stuck together in the woods for a certain number of days, you know, uh, you want to make sure you're there with a group of people that you feel you can be uh, open and vulnerable with and who you feel are competent adults. And as you said, Daniel can handle themselves. Yeah. And what else am I missing in that list? Yeah, relatively free from the major toxic personality disorders, if possible. And um, yeah, not not fully mentally ill in that moment. Yeah, that might help. Yeah, definitely. And then just having a kind of a rough schedule, which people can adhere to or not. Yeah, we really didn't have much schedule. Most of the conversations and situations that evolved were just you know, very organic people. Oh, we want to go for a walk. Oh, someone's going to do some practice on the lawn, you know, some yoga or some movement stuff or, oh, someone feels like sitting in the main hall. Anybody want to go sit? Yeah, cool. Hey, we're going to go um, talk about this wherever, or, hey, we're going to do a little candle flame or whatever it was. Yeah. It was really neat to just see people organically organized with really most of the only structure was the meals and the meals always end up being the retreat structure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hope sometime this summer or fall or winter, if I'm not sure about my schedule so far this year, to do something like that out there on the West Coast, if possible, and maybe something in the New York area, if I can yeah. get some interest. So, so we'll see. It's always uh, fun and a good time to have a talk with you, Daniel. Thank nice. you so much for coming on the show. All right, cool. Bye. All right, bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. 
If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>